Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another overcast day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Avin Ribeiro, founder and chief executive of Housekeep. Avin, hello. Hey, how are you? I am well, and yourself? Yeah, very well, thanks. Excellent. Well, we might as well dive straight in. What does the word leader mean to you? It's a good question. I think it's a, it's a tough one to start with. Um, I think a, a leader is somebody who is able to do sort of broadly uh, three things. So, so the first is see the field, see all the different things that are going on around them. Second, they're able to synthesize that and say, hey, what's the what are the important things? Because there are many things you can be distracted by. And then third, they're able to get the team, uh, team of people to go after those important things. So sort of see the field, synthesize, and then set goals and targets and culture in pursuit of those goals. And how would you describe your personal leadership style? Um. I, I don't know how, how well-placed I am to answer that, really. I, I suppose um, I wouldn't claim I see myself as a visionary trying to do new things, break down new barriers, or, or perhaps a sort of natural leader. But I think what what I do have, and, and, and which has stood me in good stead, is uh, I'm generally honest and open with my team, very transparent with, with how things work and why they work in a certain way. Um, and I take the time to get to know people individually to understand not just their professional goals, but also their personal goals and where, and where they want to get to. And I feel like uh, I've managed to get quite a long way just through those attributes, you know, being honest, being open, listening to people. Uh, I think that's a great foundation for leadership. And if you have that, a lot of the other things can follow afterwards. Now, there must have been someone at some point in your journey that inspired you to lead the way that you do today. Let's touch a bit on that. Yeah, I've been lucky um, to work across different industries in, in, in management consulting and venture capital, uh, to meet lots of founders uh, across sort of different journeys. And I think I've sought to take the best from uh, the best people I've worked with. So. Um, I think back to sort of my first job as a management consultant, the first few years of my career. There were a lot of people who were very bright, very driven in, in that field. Um, but the people who stood out were the people who took their time to understand the problems that you may be struggling with and to help you get through those. People who taught, who explained, who helped you to learn. And if you take housekeeper, for example, um, we put a huge emphasis on internal review structures, monthly one-to-ones, formal six-monthly uh, reviews, uh, a really structured learning process so everybody can move up the ladder. Um, so that's certainly something uh, I, I've, I've borrowed from other people. I think the when you when you talk about people who are founders of companies uh, who've got a real passion for what they do, Again, you look at the way they may not have some of the structured thinking that a management consultant might have, but they would certainly have a lot of the, the vision, the ability to sell, the ability to tell a story. 
um, that's super important, particularly in the early days of business, if you want to hire top tier people, you need to be able to tell them a narrative, a story about why this business is interesting, why they are interesting, why they're the perfect fit. Uh, it's very much a two-way sell. So storytelling is something I think um, uh, I, I would say doesn't come to me naturally, but certainly something I, I think is critical and uh, something you can kind of work on uh, when thinking about leadership. Now, in your particular situation, you manage quite a few people and also an enterprise that employs uh, quite a lot of uh, individuals. Of course, managing yeah. humans is is quite difficult. Uh, people have yeah. foibles and they are ill and sometimes they're in conflict with each other. How do you deal with that on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I'd say that managing people um, and uh, and dealing with all the things that you mentioned has probably been one of the most unexpected and steepest learning curves um, at Housekeep when having to run a run a company for myself. And um, I, I guess I want to touch on one specific thing, which is up to about fifteen people. Actually, you can spend a lot of time. Uh, uh, what I would call sort of man marking. You can know everyone. You can know how many siblings they have, what school they went to, uh, what their hobbies are, what they did on the weekend, who's friends with who. You can kind of know everybody pretty intimately. And you can spend time with people one-to-one uh, and learn and, and, and sort of teach people uh, uh, one-to-one. At about 15 or 20 people, that just doesn't scale. You, you can't possibly... Uh, know everything about everyone in the team. And the housekeeping team now is substantially bigger and there's uh, thousands of cleaners out in the field day to day. And obviously I don't know uh, almost any of those guys personally. And so I think what, what I've tried to do is put in place structure that would replicate that. So one of the critical things is, of course, hiring managers of people, people who it's their bread and butter day to day to manage teams of people, to know how to step in when there's a conflict or to let people figure things out themselves, uh, who put in place, you know, in the early days when you're three or four people, um, no one takes a day off ill because they're all so committed to the journey. You know, no one, no one ever wants to not come into the office because they want to do more and more. Um, and you actually have to say, so look, you know, you're going to make somebody else ill. So can you go and go home and, and then stay out of the office, please. As the company gets bigger, that kind of culture doesn't really scale that easily. And you have to put in place things like sickness policies and you have a HR tracking software and you, you put in place structure to replace some of the informal things. I think the danger with that is you end up with a sort of slightly faceless culture where everybody, uh, you, you lose all the personal touches. Now, I think the way around that is to also put a bit of structure around how do you spend time with people one-to-one. So I've recently just implemented open office hours where I've said, look, I'm just going to sit here uh, in a room, come and talk to me about whatever you like. That can be, hey, why are we, you know, how are we going to open up another city or how are we going to cross sell this other service? Or it could be, hey, I'm thinking about getting a mortgage. How does one do that? Or whatever it might be to try to keep some of that personal relationship at scale. Now, of course, uh, you are in a quite interesting uh, business. You're uh, taking a different approach to helping people uh, find uh, domestic help. 
Now, uh, can you touch on that a bit? Because uh, we all know that it can be quite difficult for individuals to source trusted individuals to work within their own homes. Um, how do you uh, uh, disrupt that within your uh, business model? Sure. So there's two sides to it. So Housekeep is now the UK's biggest marketplace. It connects up uh, households, so people, uh, consumers, and cleaners. Handled about um, uh, a million house cleans, so a, a high volume, um, and doing that with very high ratings. So, you know, over 200,000 five-star consumer reviews, for example. And on the consumer side, we're taking something that was offline, where you typically ask a neighbor for a recommendation, um, and taking that online. So you would search for housekeep, you would book uh, online, and you can pay online, so you don't need to search for cash. Um, but better still, once you check out and you book your cleaner, you can start to really bespoke your clean. So you can say, look, here's where my vacuum is, here's where my ironing is, I'd like you to do the indoor windows every few weeks, uh, or whatever it might be. So you can really tailor the service to yourself. And then you've got tools to communicate with your cleaner. So you can phone them, you can use live chat with your cleaner um, to kind of deal with any issues that as, as they come up or, you know, any edits you want on the day. You know, hey, do you mind doing half an hour's ironing? That side, I think, you know, taking consumer service and taking online is, you know, pretty pretty well-trodden path. I think people have done that in other industries. The other side of the market, the cleaner side, is I think where a lot of the intellectual property and the technology sits. So for cleaners who would typically be doing very long travel routes, short jobs, having to collect cash, not getting paid on time, We'd be able to automate all of that so cleaners can work very close to home, often within walking distance of home, and their jobs can be within walking distance of one another. So in other words, we can radically drive up both cleaner earnings and radically decrease cleaner travel costs, which for cleaners is a big swing in terms of their earnings. Um, that means we can attract the best cleaners. Attracting the best cleaners obviously helps us attract the customers. Um, uh, and that's where we invest a lot of time in technology, automation, and route optimization. Well, uh, Avan, it's uh, been a pleasure having you on the program. And unfortunately, uh, we are about out of time. But before I let you go, what does next 12 months have in store for Housekeep? Sure. It's a very exciting time. So we, uh, as I said, we're sort of UK market leader in house cleaning. And we're now exploring uh, three different routes, actually. The first is we're going to expand into other home services, so cross-selling, not just cleaning, but also plumbing, electricians, and so, gardening, and so on. Um, we're also exploring some new cities in the UK, so we should uh, watch this space if you're uh, outside London. Um, and finally, we're also looking at commercial cleaning, so office, retail, and so on, so expanding into different verticals. So the next 12 months will be very busy for us, but uh, hopefully as successful as the previous one. Well, Avin, thank you for coming on the program. Uh, it's been a pleasure, as I said. I do hope you'll come back on the show at some point in the near future to tell us how things are going. Avin, thank you. Certainly. Pleasure. That was Avin Ribeiro, founder and chief executive of Housekeep. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, we're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? 
<laughs> and of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Although there are one or two people who are very familiar um, uh, who do Google me, realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool. Many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be <laughs> playing, I guess, one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where... Um, so Jeff Hurst was a, a first-class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or, or football, obviously the importance of leadership, it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and a manager over many, many, many years. He and He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess. He would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you, you're very... Fortunate, I think you, you you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and uh, a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood, and of course a, a great manager in Sir Alf Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that caliber can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at. West Ham uh, with with a manager like like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players, and of course they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peters? I think probably. Well, I was very fortunate to play with the caliber of the players I did. Again, mm-hmm. again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain. Um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier he played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy in the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership uh, what I do, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident, I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties, 
to car dealerships. And you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the value and quality of leadership. And that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved in my career in those early days with two, two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Al Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously, uh, after uh, at West Ham, your uh, plane came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man, I'm sure, when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, up naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand, whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you. It can have a, a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and, of course, your life. But yep. in that era, I was involved for six or seven years. He, it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very, very strict. Probably at a time, maybe overly strict, but at a time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across, and very few people. And he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who he didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people, and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn for you, and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned, and I've taken it on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in the group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think... Uh a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, Jeff, you could uh, perhaps pick right now that did show those uh, qualities in uh, South so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team or certainly in the squad and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before. I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be, be playing. In, in the team but uh, in a couple of friendly games more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway I think in Denmark mm. I didn't I played two of the four games and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England and he he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay he started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Hunt. so mm. I, I had the, the impact of thinking I, at that stage I, like I was going to play and didn't start because of just 
a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Glee's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Well, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out, mm. out. So I never really felt, people talk about pressure a lot and it's there and people, players talk about it, people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessarily feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that, that were left in the squad after he moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Al showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very... I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Uh, we had some great players, but overall they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realise there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I... I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week, over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about twenty minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. It's too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And of course I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal and I looked round, put my foot on the ball and looked round for a little while and said, oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that's, uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited to just have a glance round, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there, are, there certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, and the most stu- stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely... But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we... Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You want. You got time. I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay. So I was uh, doing a, a at a dinner in the Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honour, mm. 
on this occasion I was speaking for about 20 minutes then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening and there was a football questions and then all of a sudden I heard a, somebody at the back who, who asked a question I didn't quite hear what he said he didn't have the microphone with him so I said I didn't hear what he said can you please give this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said so the chap had the mic and he said when a turtle loses its shell is it naked or is it homeless Right. <laughs> what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like I that. Just, but then I again, found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did, uh, um, it did make again, a laugh that day. If you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff. I think um, you, you were a young man when see, this happened, when you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by, by quick, one way or the other, people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new, a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are. There are people who pay you compliments of, of uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and, of course, in, uh, England fans who... Um, I, I think probably... Yeah, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest that I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, well, you, but, you don't but have that, to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it. Uh, perhaps, um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you, and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a uh, helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitches. People must realise that that's, that has an influence. How you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team laterally. Um, yeah, and and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with? Um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader. Um, well, a, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to. Their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's that a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that that comes through the leadership. That's not just 
luck. That's absolutely that's the show. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson is just absolutely, mm. you've got to take him as the first example, but Klopp's only done this over a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, and subsequently since he's gone, how they they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen. We've seen we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think? Could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they uh, Ron Greenwood. Yeah, well, the, the answer, straightforward answer, is yes. Um, they, <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with, um, I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England. Who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were, I was very fortunate, and I wouldn't pick any one player out. I think looking at so that, many. yeah, so many, and that's why we were successful because we had so many. Um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team, I think that that was outstanding, and uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody. And I'm going back from an earlier earlier question for me that um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days. Every year, uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish after '66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. um, getting on with each other, lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't and- when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those. I would pick every one of the 11 players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else. They were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We had some great players. We had some great players, of course. But without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, we wouldn't have been ultimately, ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the, the the whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word, the word is showed, the word is the word is team. Absolutely, and I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes uh, together, everyone achieves more, and that that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking if if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life. What would you identify, if you can, 
as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, dedication, dedication to the job, um, thinking about that, that, that role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. If you, I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level. You may, you know, have a, wait, have a couple of weeks holiday, but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not, uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's, you're completely focused, you're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to, nice to have a talk about this and just go over the, over the past and just uh, refresh my, my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.